0: Well, I'd like to begin by stating a few platitudes that are uh, pretty fairly obvious. Uh, The first is that life is full of decisions, choices. Uh, Secondly, that the choices we make reveal our priorities. And every choice that we make comes with an opportunity cost. For example your family begins to grow. And it becomes time to get a vehicle which better suits your growing family. What are your choices? Well, you basically have two options. Uh, You can get a minivan, or you can get an SUV. And what you choose reveals your priorities. For example, if you go with a minivan, you reveal that you are prioritizing efficient use of space and seating, even if you have to drive a trash can on wheels. But of course the choice comes with an opportunity cost, your self-respect. If you choose the SUV, you're prioritizing power, drivability, fun, being able to look yourself in the mirror in the morning. But the opportunity cost here, of course, is your family's comfort, the lack of space, and probably a few MPGs. Well, jokes aside, we see this in other arenas as well. Will I take job A or will I take job B? Job A pays more and requires extensive hours and a long commute, but it comes with the opportunity cost of spending time with my family and serving my church. Uh, Job B pays a little bit less ...but has a far better work-life balance and is only one town over. This allows me to spend more time with my family and serving my church. But the opportunity cost is that I'm going to miss out on a higher income. Your priorities are going to determine which job you take. Same thing with a house. You're looking for a house. House A is bigger. It has a pool. It's ready to move in. But it has the opportunity cost of being 45 minutes away from the nearest healthy church... House B is five minutes away. It's slightly more expensive and is going to require a little bit more of touch-up work, but it's only five minutes away. What am I going to prioritize that will determine my decision-making? There's research that estimates that we make over 2,000 decisions ...every waking hour, most of them innocuous, most of them subconscious. But the point stands that we make many choices every day. And the question that Jesus wants to ask you this morning is this. Are you prioritizing spiritual matters in your decision-making? Or in other words, when you make decisions... ...do they reveal that God's priorities are your priorities... Or do they reveal that you and God have different priorities? As we read our text this morning, pay attention because Jesus is going to offer his disciples uh, a kind rebuke for something that you and I might not think twice about. And he does so because his disciples' priorities are not in order. And if that's true, then I imagine that you and I could probably stand to rethink ours. So pick up with me uh, in chapter 4. This is the second part of a two-part sermon. We looked at the woman at the well last week. I'm going to back up to verse 28 and read through our passage today. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They, the Samaritans... Father, we just ask that you would speak to us this morning, that through your word you would humble us, that you would call us uh, to fix our eyes upon you, that you'd fill our hearts with your joy and your love as we seek to know more about you so that we can love you even more. Lord, we love you and we praise you, and it's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. All right, our first analogy this morning is that of unknown food. That's the analogy Jesus is going to be starting with, but... In order to get there, I just want to briefly back up and condense what we talked about last week with the woman at the well. If you recall, Jesus was leaving Judea. He was heading north toward Galilee, but he stopped over in a little town of Samaria called Sikar. And it was there that he was sitting by Jacob's well in the heat of the day, thirsty from all of his travels. And a Samaritan woman, a sinful Samaritan woman, comes out to the well. And Jesus strikes up a conversation with this woman which was very surprising because he was a Jew, she was a Samaritan. And as the conversation goes, he asked for water, but he eventually turned the conversation to show that he was the person who could truly offer her the water that she so desperately needed. And what water was that? It was the living waters of the Holy Spirit. And in so doing, Jesus showed us that he prioritized the mission that he had been given from God even more than he prioritized quenching his own thirst. And so it was that as he continued conversing with this woman, she became convinced that he was the Messiah. She left her water jar at the well and took off running into town saying, uh, come and see a man who's told me everything I've ever done, which was shorthand for all the sins that I've committed in life. But she didn't feel judged by him, she felt Forgiven. And so she's spreading this good news to all of these people in town. She says, come see this guy. And she points them to Jesus. And we pick up today, and there are these crowds from this town in Samaria... ...coming out to see this Jewish prophet. So that's where we are here in verse 31. There are crowds approaching. Now Jesus' disciples, when this whole thing has been going on with the woman at the well... Uh, Jesus' disciples have been off in town buying food uh, for themselves and for Jesus. It's been a long journey, and they have further to go. They've set their face to Galilee. And Jesus is thirsty, he's doubtless hungry, and his disciples come to him and they say, Rabbi, eat. But Jesus has a different priority though he thirsts, though he hungers, he decides now is the time to teach his disciples a lesson about priorities. And he turns to them and he says this in verse 32, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Now, as Jesus often does, he's using an earthly analogy to speak to a spiritual reality. His disciples are going to take him literally here. And he says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And they start wandering around to you bring him food? I didn't bring him food. Did you bring him food? What's he talking about? And before long, Jesus continues his conversation to show that they've totally misunderstood him. And as he explains this, it's actually an indictment on his disciples. What does he say? He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his works. He says, Jesus being Harsh to his disciples? Surely it's not a sin to want to eat lunch. Well, it's not. But it could be. What do I mean by that? Well, here we have all of these Samaritans coming out of this town. They've heard that the Messiah might be here. These are people who are existing in spiritual darkness, spiritual death, and they're coming out to see this guy, Jesus, at the well because this could be the promised one they've been waiting for. They're desperate for the good news of the gospel. They're desperate to hear the word of God from the word of God, and their disciples, Jesus' disciples, are thinking about lunch. They're thinking in human terms, not in spiritual terms. And so Jesus here is saying that his spiritual work, which has been given to him by the Father, is of greater importance to him than physical sustenance. It's more important than water. It's more important than food. And remember, Jesus is fully human. He's actually thirsty. He's actually hungry. He's actually tired. So, okay, well, what is the work that the Father gave him? Well, it's the promise we got in John three sixteen. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The whole purpose of God the Father sending the Son was so that whoever believes in the Son would not perish, under the condemnation for their sins against God, but that in believing in Jesus, they would have their sins forgiven. That's why it says he came that the world might be saved through him. And so here we have a golden opportunity for the Son to point others to himself, to fulfill his purpose. A large cloud of Samaritans living in darkness, and they're coming out to see Jesus. And Jesus has good news. The opportunity is now. Now. There are people desperate for good news. But Peter the Pooh Bear is saying, I've got a rumbly in my tumbly. When's lunch? Jesus says, my food is to preach good news. And in saying such, Jesus makes clear that he's prioritizing what is spiritual over his physical needs. Of course, in giving his son, God did not just give him to preach good news, but he gave him as a sacrifice to die on the cross to atone for the sins of many. And listen, Jesus, if he had prioritized himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, totally could have backed out. But he valued the work which the Father had given to him. He valued his mission more than he valued his life, and he prioritized that mission over his life, his comfort, and his sustenance, going all the way to the cross. Because if he had backed out at any moment, if he had prioritized his own life before the cross, then you and I would have no hope. You and I would remain dead in our sins. You and I would remain condemned by God for our sins. And on the pathway to hell. But praise God that his son, Jesus, valued you and I More than he valued his own thirst, his own hunger, and his own life. And he died on the cross so that if you repent from your sins and believe in him, you will spend everlasting life with him. He will totally forgive you and make you righteous. And we see this time and time again. I just want to offer you another picture of this from Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. Here, Jesus had just sent out his apostles to preach all over Galilee, and they come back to him. And he says the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot... From all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. You see, Jesus and his disciples were flat out exhausted, they were tired, they just wanted to find a desolate place where they could rest. And yet he gets to the other side of the lake and he looks. And he has compassion on these people. Why? Because it says they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were people desperate to hear the word of God. And so Jesus, at his weakest, at his frailest, even with his disciples that are worn out, even as they're seeking to go find rest, he has compassion and he teaches them many things. Now, it's important to note, I'm not saying rest is a bad thing. Jesus found many opportunities to rest, to take naps, to get away and pray. But when the opportunity arose, when the opportunity was right there for Jesus to minister to these people, he didn't say, hey guys, I need to go take a nap. You can come back in a few hours. When the opportunity came to point people to himself, he said, I'm going to teach you. Even though he was weak and tired. I think it's interesting, if we go back to John 4 that Jesus chooses the analogy of food and water, rest in Mark 6, and his own life in the Garden of Gethsemane, all of those things were things that took a back seat to his mission. I think we could understand if Jesus said, I'm calling you to give up two hours of your week that you spend watching TV to serve me. But Jesus is saying that even food and water take a back seat ...to the mission of God... ...to go and make disciples of all nations. Food and water don't exactly feel optional, do they? (laughs) I think it's fair to say they fall into the category of needs... ...not wants. But Jesus didn't stutter. If needs like food and water in your life... ...are to take a backseat to God's mission... ...then of course everything of lesser importance also takes a backseat to the mission of God. Now, perhaps you're here this morning, and you don't know what you think of this Jesus guy. Maybe you're listening online. And just this idea of prioritizing the mission of God over everything else in your life sounds kind of crazy. I get that. But if we think about it, I think it can start to make some sense. If Jesus is truly the Son of God, if Jesus came to earth to die in the place of sinners so that when they place their faith in him, they are reconciled to their God, if every breath we take is a gift from God, if every moment of our lives is a gift from God, if Jesus really did die on the cross to save us, if he really did uh, rise from the grave, as evidence that he was accepted by God, then I think we have a certain responsibility to listen to what he says and to consider what he says we should do with our time and the kind of things we should prioritize. But this isn't going to make sense unless we truly do believe that Jesus is who he said he is and that he really did rise from the grave. But if he did then the work of God really is that important. Listen, if I miss my lunch because I'm having a spiritual conversation from someone in town who's curious about the faith, what are the consequences? I'm probably going to be a little hangry that afternoon. I uh, I might not be feeling great. But if I, instead of pursuing this conversation, I shut the conversation down when the opportunity arises because I want my time, I want my lunch when I planned on it, brothers and sisters, the consequences could be eternal. Because I'm choosing to operate on my schedule and prioritize my own needs when there's an eternal soul desperate for the word of God. The work of God is that important. And so we'll continue to our second analogy this morning, reaping the harvest, and this is in verses 35 to 38. Jesus has said to his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. And then he quotes a common proverb of that day. He says, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Uh, The idea here is that you go out and you sow a field, And then the harvest is months away, so you're not worried about doing the harvest until the field is actually ripe. We planted sugar snap peas in our house garden on April 1st, and now at the end of May, we're just starting to see the first blooms that will then turn into sugar snap peas. But it takes a while. We're not going to harvest until they are actually ripe. And I'm very excited about that. So Jesus says, this is the saying, this is how you're thinking, the harvest is a long time off, but then he continues and says, but here's the reality, and let's continue reading. Look, I tell you, verse 35, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. He's telling them to look up, and I imagine he's pointing towards this crowd of Samaritans that is approaching him. And he says, The field is ripe for harvest. And when the field is ripe for harvest, you go and you harvest. Because what happens if you wait too long before the harvest? Well, a freeze could set in and destroy your whole crop. If not that, if you leave the crop in the field too long, it could rot or get eaten by animals. So when the moment is there, Jesus is saying, the field is ripe for the harvest, the spiritual opportunity is here, it must be seized, even if you were in the mood for lunch. He's saying there's a harvest of souls about to be had. Look up, consider the field. And then he continues... He says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. He says, here the analogy breaks down. He says, ordinarily one sows and the reaping is four months off. But Jesus is saying, now, at this new age which I'm inaugurating, this sowing and reaping often overlap. Normally, you sow and you have to wait. Now, these two things happen together because Jesus is speaking of a spiritual reality that in this new age of the Spirit, one sows and one can reap within very close proximity. One person might do the sowing and the reaping or one person might sow the gospel and another reaps the harvest of souls. And so it is that the sower and the reaper can rejoice together because whether one sows or one reaps, the result is that someone places their faith in Jesus Christ and gains eternal life. And so the disciples here are called to the harvest. Now Jesus gets a little confusing, I admit, here in verse 37 and 38. He says here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Uh, He says that someone else has done the sowing and he's sending them to do the reaping. Well, who is that someone else? Some people think it's John the Baptist. Some people think it might be Jesus himself. We're not sure. But Jesus is just making the point that some people sow and some people reap. Some people do both. Right now he's saying his disciples are called to go into the field... the harvest why because the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few and so there is sowing and there is reaping don't be discouraged if you have ever sowed without reaping and don't be too proud of yourself if you have reaped without sowing so let's just summarize this section here number one this is a call to prioritize god's work even above basic necessities like food and water Secondly, the work lies before those disciples and it's here for us. Remember, we've been given this work from Jesus in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you even to the end of the age. For behold, I am with you. And third, making disciples is a team sport. One person rarely does all the work themselves. Some sow, some harvest. We all get touch points. And we all rejoice together when someone turns from sin to trust in Jesus Christ. And so we can be excited. We can invite someone to come to church with us and to experience the goodness of Christ in the body of Christ. Well, lastly, we're going to see in our final point of the day that Jesus will then fulfill the analogies that he has set forth. I Look at verse 39 with me. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And he said to the woman... It is no longer because of what you said that we believe... ...for we've heard ourselves... ...and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So his food was to do the will of the Father. He called his disciples to recognize that the harvest was ripe and ready to be had. And these crowds come out to him... ...and he preaches the good news to them. But remember that it was his preaching to this woman earlier, that we looked at last week, that caused her to go to these people and say, look, there's a guy who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? So she goes out and she just shares her story. This is what Jesus has meant to me. Come and see him for yourself. And dear friends, that is a powerful tool for pointing people to Jesus. Let me tell you what Jesus has meant to me in my life. But it's a first step. Eventually you want to point people to Jesus and say, come and see And what better place to experience and encounter Jesus than the body of Christ where we are gathered right now. And so she brings these people to Jesus. And it says they came to him and they asked Jesus to stay with them. Now remember, Jesus is on his way to Galilee. Jesus has an agenda. Jesus has objectives he wants to hit. He's very efficient with his time. And yet when he has this group of people asking him to stay with him, he maintains the flexibility to stay in this Samaritan village for two additional days. Why? Because he's prioritizing the work which God has given him. His food is to do the will of him who sent him, even if that wasn't the original plan. Even if it was inconvenient. Even if he had plans for the weekend. And the result of Jesus and his disciples prioritizing the harvest over their food is that many believed in him. And they say, hey, we no longer believe in this guy just because you told us about him, but we've come and we've encountered him and we've heard the good news of Jesus Christ and now we believe that he's the Savior, not just of Jews, not just of Samaritans. This guy is the Savior of the whole world. Thank you for bringing this to our attention. And that was a remarkable statement by Samaritans toward a Jewish man. They've come to understand that Jesus is the Savior. Let me ask, have you come to that understanding yourself? Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Well, Jesus shows the importance of keeping an eye on the harvest. Even when he's thirsty, he prioritizes God's mission. Even when he's hungry even when he's tired, even when it's inconvenient, even when he doesn't want to die. He kept his eye on the mission of God for you and for me. We'll close with an application. Jesus says a lot of challenging things. And I admit that the past two weeks were surprisingly here in John 4... Uh, A challenging set of sermons for me to uh, study. A challenging text. Because Jesus is calling us to see things through a spiritual lens. And he's calling us to prioritize what is spiritual, thus what is eternal, over what is temporary. To prioritize the mission that he has given the church. And if we as a church are going to do this... It means that we're going to have to rethink the way we think about our time. Starting with how we refer to our time. Is it my time? My lunch break? My evening? My day off? My retirement? Whose time is it? To whom do you belong? Is it your time? Really? Is it my time? Brothers and sisters, every day is a gift of God to us. Which is why Paul can say things in Ephesians 5 like this. He says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time, or redeeming the time is another translation, because the days are evil. And so we're commanded as Christians to make the best use of the time which has been given us. And Christ has given us a perfect example of what that looks like. It looks like prioritizing spiritual things, prioritizing the mission of God, even when it's inconvenient. Uh, you know, this past week, uh, i had had a long day, and I was tired. I came home, spent time with the kids, played with them, helped get dinner on the table. Uh, we had time together, um, we cleaned up, kids got their baths, we go upstairs, and I don't know about you, but by the time my kids are ready for bed, by the time bedtime comes, I am so done. And so I got the kids in bed, I sang them a song, and I'm like so excited just to close the door, get downstairs, and hang out with Meredith, my wife. And as I was closing the door... My daughter, Aria, said to me this last week, she says, Daddy, we didn't pray. Can we pray? And I'm like out the door, excited to go sit on the couch. And I said, no. (laughs) And then I realized what I had said. And it hit me like a knife in the gut. I'm so concerned with my evening, with my relaxation, with my time that my four-year-old daughter is asking me to pray with her, and I just said no. How selfish can I be? Is it my time, or is it God's? So, of course, I went back in, and we prayed, and I don't know how many opportunities I'll have like that. What are some other ways? What are some other ways that we prioritize me time when we could be prioritizing the mission. Maybe you come home from work. You're also tired. It's a good thing to be tired after you come home from work. And your, your neighbor sees you. And you tried to get in quickly, but you weren't quick enough. Your neighbor knows you're a Christian. Maybe he's going through a hard time. Maybe his wife just left him. And he's coming to you to ask a spiritual question. He's coming to you for guidance. The opportunity is there. The field is ripe for the harvest, but you're tired. You're hungry. You want to kick off your shoes. You just want to put this difficult day behind you. What is your priority? What do you choose? Do you try to shake off the conversation, to to shut it off as soon as possible? Or do you seize the divine appointment which God has given you to point this person to Jesus Christ? the source of living waters. Your priority will determine what you do. I recognize that we want our nights to ourselves, but what if you were strategic and intentional about inviting your non-Christian friend or neighbor over to your house once a week, once a month, just to get to know them, just to develop a relationship, just to be able to pray for them, just to say, hey, can I, can I pray for you when something happens? Your priorities will determine whether or not you're doing something like that. Maybe you are a mom. Maybe you're out with your kids shopping or at a playground or at library story time. Maybe somebody strikes up a conversation with you right as you're about to leave. Maybe you really, really want to feed your kids and get them into bed at nap time. Let me ask you this. Are you willing to sacrifice part of your nap time when someone begins a spiritual conversation? When God has given you a divine appointment to point someone to Jesus? Are you going to say, no, I have to have nap time right at nap time? Or I have to have lunch right at noon every day? Your priority will determine whether you do that. Two weeks ago, uh, a well-known pastor named Tim Keller... Passed away. Six years ago, uh, Tim Keller was the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, actually in Manhattan. It was a 5,000 person Presbyterian church in the heart of Manhattan, which nobody thought that would ever happen. But he decided to step down from being the senior pastor so that there would be an effective transition of leadership. And that was back in 2017. But when he stepped down, he made it explicitly clear that he was not retiring. Retirement is actually a fairly recent concept. And he said, you can go back and check his tweets, I am not retiring. Instead, he sought to work with Reformed Theological Seminary right there in New York, my my alma mater, and, and to teach there and to help it continue to grow and develop. And he continued writing books like his book on Forgiveness, and he continued teaching and preaching at his church, though he was no longer the senior pastor. Three years after he stepped down, which was totally unforeseen, he was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. And three years later, he was dead. Now, Tim Keller, who's not... Jesus. He's not perfect, but he could have rested on his laurels. He accomplished a lot for the kingdom of God. He could have said, I spent 40 years in ministry. Now I'm going to have my time. It's my time for retirement. And he had no idea that he only had six years left. But he chose to continue in the work which God had given him. He chose to prioritize the mission of God even through cancer treatment all the way to his death. Why? Because his eyes were fixed on his Savior. So dear friends, as some of you are approaching the age where you are no longer required by necessity to work an ordinary job, I pray that you will still think strategically about the time that God has allotted to you? Is it your time? Or has it been given you as a gift with which to serve your Creator and your Redeemer? I pray that you will prioritize the mission of God, prioritize the opportunities which He has given to you, even if it is not what you expected. What would it look like if we as a church prayed desperately for these divine appointments to point people to Jesus what would it look like if when we saw these opportunities we were not turning inwards selfishly claiming our time for ourselves but what if we prioritize the work of God even when we're hungry even when we're thirsty even when we're tired even when it's inconvenient what if we chose to follow Jesus To point others to Jesus. How might that affect Medfield and the surrounding communities and beyond? God loves to work through ordinary men and women, even boys and girls. When they just point people to Jesus and say, come and see for yourself. Let's pray.